Beruchim and Imsaim, welcome, gentlemen. It is uh, always a pleasure to be here for our winter semester at the Oil Yaakov here in Deal. And uh, Baruch Hashem, our membership is growing by leaps and bounds. It's uh, heartwarming to see that the Midrash here at the synagogue is practically full. And uh, you all came out for one reason, because you expect to hear something novel on the Perasha. And uh, the Perasha never lets us down. There's always something amazing uh, that's uh, revealed when we come together. Uh, I have full intention to unearth tonight a great Hiddush. Uh, the likings that I don't think you heard and it came to me this week as I was studying the Perasha. I consider it a, a blockbuster, if I say so myself. Now, I know I'm setting the bar very high, but uh, to me it was a big Hadush. <clears throat> but in order to understand the main uh, entree, we need to first explain the simple explanation first. We cannot start in the penthouse. First we have to build the foundations and go up slowly. So you have to give me about 45 minutes so if, you, so if you're busy, you want to do something for 45 minutes and come back for the last 15 minutes. But I'll do, I don't think you'll appreciate it as much. What we're doing now, if you have a homash, it'll be beneficial. I have one in front of me as well. If you don't have it, you can trust me. I'm a rabbi, I wouldn't lie to you. <coughs> it's Perek uh, Yudalid, chapter 14. Lech Lecha, exactly. Bereshit, yeah, Bereshit Lech Lecha. Chapter Yudana. So let's read it uh, inside the text. We'll say it on the simple level, and then we'll develop. Vayhi bime Amrafel. It was in the times of a fellow called Amrafel. Well, your guess is good as mine. I never heard of him. But the Torah says he was Melech Shin'ar. He was the king of Shin'ar. All right, I don't know who Amraphel is, and I don't know where Shin'ar is. Besides that, now there was also another king. There was a king called Aryoch, Melech el The third king was Kedor Laomer, Melech Elam. And the fourth king was a fellow by the name of Tid'al, Melech Goim, the king of Goim. The fourth king doesn't even have a location. He's just the king of, of the Goim. So these are the four kings. Not so well known. If you ask most of our members to list the four kings, they'll tell you uh, the king of hearts, the king of spades, the king of clubs, and the king of diamonds. Those are the four kings that uh, are well known. Uh, most people would not say Amrafel, Aryoch, Kedor Laomer, and Tidal. So you learned something. Now what did these four kings do? So they got together and they went to war. And then the Torah tells us that they fought against the five kings. So it was four against five. Clearly, they were the underdog. In the group of five, without getting into it too deep, <coughs> included the king of Sedom and the king of Amora. We know those cities, Sedom and Amora. And amazing results in the war. Torah tells us against all odds, a great upset, the underdog would win, the four kings would beat 
the five kings. And that's, uh, that happens sometimes. And then the Torah tells us as a result. Where did this war take place, by the way? If you want to go to uh, next pasuk, it says, Kol ele haberu. All of them got together. El emek asidim. They got to a place called emek asidim. Hu yama melach. Yama melach is the Dead Sea. So that's where this war was fought. So the next time you go to the Dead Sea, besides uh, floating uh, on the water and putting mud on your body, think for a minute what took place in this uh, region. This was World War I. The first war before 1918, nine kings, the superpowers of the world, got together in that region. Maybe that's why they also called it the Dead Sea, because of all the, 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 the corpses, who knows how many people died as a result of the war. Fine. Now, after the four kings won, look at Pasuk 11. That's what you do in war. They took the spoils. <coughs> the four kings took the spoils of Sedom, Amora, Ve'et Kol Ochlam, Fine. So they cleaned them out. They took all the food. Look at the next Pasuk. Vayikhu'et Lot. Oh, now we're starting to get into the story. Who else lived in Sedom? Lot. We learned that in the beginning of the parasha. Originally he lived with Abraham and then he parted company and he moved to Sedom. So after the kings conquered Sedom, besides taking everything of Sedom, we have a special pasuk that tells us they took Lot. And they also took Rechusho, his valuables. And the Torah tells us, who was Lot, by the way? Ben Ahi Avram. He was the nephew of Avram. And that's true, he was the nephew of Avram. Uh, Lot's father and Abraham's father were brothers. So Lot, this is nephew. Now, when I read this pasuk, I'm concerned about the construction of the pasuk. I wouldn't have written it this way. The pasuk says, they took Lot and his value, the nephew of Abraham. It's not the way you would write it. I would have written it, and they took Lot, the nephew of Abraham, and his valuables. Why does it say Lot, ve'et kol and then it comes and tells me, oh, by the way, oh, we forgot to tell you who he is. Uh, he is uh, Ben Ahi Avram. That's my first question. The construction doesn't seem to, 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 to fit correctly. I would have, it's like you're saying, uh, Rabbi Eli and his assets, the son of Yosef. Uh, Rabbi Eli, the son of Yosef. And his assets. Lot, his assets, the nephew of Avram. And I have another question, if I may ask. We know who Lot is already. And we don't have to introduce him in this pasuk. We've talked about him in the beginning of the parasha extensively. So if you don't know who Lot is by now, you don't deserve to know who he is. The Torah should not go out of its way for the guy who missed the first 20 pesukim and start to rehash who Lot is. We know who Lot is over there. Now, it's not like there are two lots. Now, I know last week we told you there's two Noahs, but that's it. As far as I know, there's only one lot. So therefore, whenever you hear the word lot, you know right away who we're talking about. I mean, that's the nephew. So every time you're going to say the guy's name, you have to give me his old credentials and his old profile. So why did this person come and tell me, yeah, lot, oh, who, lot, who? Oh, lot, yeah, I guess the same guy, the guy from yesterday, the, 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 the nephew. Oh, nephew, that's all you have to tell to me. I know that guy. Yeah, oh, 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 oh. So, so go slow, so go slow. 
I saw a beautiful explanation from Rabbi Shimon Schwab to explain this pasuk, although that, that's not what I came to say tonight, but it's a beauty. He says, if you remember why Lot separated from Abraham. Initially, he went together with him until they started to make money. Once Lot started to taste the good life with money, he said, but I got to live with this religious guy, Abraham, he doesn't enjoy life. With all the money, he still goes to shul at four o'clock in the morning. He learns all day long, prays, so the money didn't, uh, didn't change his life. So if I got to get away from this Sadiq, <clears throat> and he tells Abraham, <clears throat> I'm going to move to Sin City. Where was that? Sedom Ba'amurah. Over there, those guys had a party. Those guys haven't had a good If you got some money and you go to Sedom, I guarantee you'll have a good time. So therefore, the Pasuk is telling us what separated Lot from Abraham, the Rechush. So therefore, the Pasuk is read, Vayikhu et Lot, ve'et kol Rechusho, ben Ahi Abraham. Separating Lot and ben Ahi Abraham was the money. That's what got in between them. So the Torah is coming to tell us what was the, the cause of the, of the separation. It had to do with the money. That's a, that's a beautiful uh, 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 rendering of the text and why it was written in that order. It wants to put the money separating between Lot and Abraham to say that's what it was all about. Lot wanted to go spend his money and he didn't want to hang around you know, the religious uh, uncle Abraham that was not uh, you know, willing to uh, partake in the good life. Fine. Let's go further. Now what happens is, Abraham has no idea that his nephew was in trouble. I mean, they didn't have WhatsApp, and they don't have, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, CNN, so he can't watch the news, or Yeshiva world. So therefore, Abraham's back home in Elone Mamre, wherever he is, and now all of a sudden, he gets a news flash from the Palit. Who's the Palit? A guy called Og. Og was a giant, he escaped the war, and he runs to Abraham's house, and he's going to tell him, Abraham, I got bad news to tell you, your nephew Lord is in trouble. Let's read that pasuk. The pasuk is Yud Gimal. Vayavu palit. So the palit is the fugitive. Vayaged le'Abraham ha'evri. He tells Abraham ha'evri, and he's in Elonem Mabre, and he tells him what's happening. Now let's pause for a minute. Who does he tell the news to? Don't, don't say that. It says he tells the news to Avram Ha'ivri. Mm. Now, are you aware that Avram is known throughout the world as Avram Ha'ivri? Do you know why he's called Avram Ha'ivri? Simple explanation, the Hebrew. Because he represented the Hebrews. Ha'ivri is the Hebrews. On a deeper explanation, Ha'ivri means a side. Because ideologically, Abraham was on the other side. The rest of the world was believing in Abu Dazarah and paganism and uh, idolatry. And Abraham, on the other side of the philosophical uh, spectrum, is preaching monotheism. So therefore, he's nicknamed Abraham the Evri, the one that was on the other Ever, the one that was on the other ideological side. He stood on his side alone, and his purpose was to try to get as many people to his side as he can. But initially, he was alone. And everybody heard that from first grade, Avraham Ha'ivri, Avraham Ha'ivri. Now take a guess, how many times do you think the Torah refers to Avraham as that name, Avraham Ha'ivri? And Mr. Anthony is absolutely correct. One time. 
And the only time it's mentioned is here. And my question was, what happened over here in this episode that all of a sudden you're telling me uh, that he's an Ivri? Why not tell that to me when you introduce him in the beginning of the parasha? When you mention his name, hey, now we're going to talk about Avram Ivri. What happens in this story that we need to know his Ivri side? Fine. Questions. Questions. Look at the next pasuk. Now, just think for a second. What would your reaction be? He just hears that his nephew is taken into captivity. It means he's in trouble. I would say the pasuk should say, and Avraham was surprised. Or it should say he cried. Or he screamed. Or he jumped up. I mean, there has to be some reaction to this. This is terrible news. Now, now hold on to your seats for Abraham's reaction. Next pasuk says, Vayishma Abraham. He heard. Now, what do you mean he heard? I mean, of course he heard. We know he heard. If Og told it to him, and as far as we know, Abraham's hearing was fine. So therefore, you don't have to tell me he heard. Every time somebody says something in Tanakh to the other guy, you don't have to say, oh, he said it and he heard it. We know that. We know how the body works. The voice comes out, goes to the ears, the guy hears it. You don't got to tell me every bodily function when there's a conversation. And I'm sure Abraham is breathing also at this time. And he breathed. No, we know that already. There's, there's certain moves that are automatics. Hearing is an automatic. So why does it have to say, We know he heard. That's a very dull reaction after hearing that your nephew was in captivity. All he did was hear. But now listen to the Basuk says, Vayishma Avram ki nishba ahiv. Here we go. He says he hears who got taken into captivity? His brother. Now it says ahiv. Now we're in trouble. Because a second ago you just told me that it's his nephew. Now how is it possible that three pesukim ago it's his nephew and now he turns in to his brother? Now, I mean, today anything's possible. Today, today you can turn a nephew into a sister if you want. I'm not, I, I, I understand that. I'm not talking about today. Today, that's an easy trick. But in the olden days, once you were born a certain way, I mean, that's the way you are. So if you're a nephew, you're a nephew. You can't turn into a brother. But here, all of a sudden, a very modern uh, pasuk over here. He's a nephew in this pasuk, and then all of a sudden becomes a brother in that pasuk. And what's up what I'm talking about? We clearly, Lot is not his brother. Now, Listen, if I wanted to be intellectually honest, I could squeeze it in and say that, you know, Lot and Abraham were married to two sisters. So you can't say it's his brother and then put in parentheses, in law. So it's not a lie when he says it's his brother. There's a way to, to squeeze it in. But I have a, 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 a question. Why... Why wasn't he worried to save him as a nephew? Well, the nephew relationship is not enough to save him. He says he heard that his brother is taking over the. Oh, now I got to go save the guy. What, what, what did he hear more about it being a brother than a nephew that motivates Abraham to go save him? And it's going to say that he musters up his army of 318 soldiers and he chases them. Now, lucky that Lot was not my nephew. Because if he was my nephew, I would say, let him die. 
Because, I mean, this guy over here, he made his own bed. He moved to Sedom, he left Abraham. The Gemara says he actually denied God at a certain point. He went off to Derech. You were living in the lap of spiritual luxury. You chose now to leave Avraham to go to Vegas and live there with the Rishayim. And now all of a sudden you're in trouble. If I was Avraham, I would say, <laughs> what do you think? You think you're going to leave the religion and you're going to have a, a peaceful life? Here you go. This is what happens to the Shaim. Finish. And now I should go bail you out after you left me. You disrespected me. And you tell me I'm not interested in you and your God. And then he gets in trouble. And I would send, I would send him a letter. Hey, you deserve it, Lord. Which means, why does Abraham... You understand this is a great risk for Abraham. He only has 318 soldiers. And according to the Gemara, it's not even that. He only took Eliezer, and Eli, the numerical value of the word Eliezer equals 318. So he's going to fight with the Gematria, uh, 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 four kings. I mean, <laughs> the odds are that Abraham is going to get pulverized. And we have a law that says you're not allowed to put yourself in Sakana. So wh- why is he going and sticking his neck out, literally, I mean, if you want to tell me uh, one of the Gidole Hador was in trouble, okay, but I want to save that Sadiq. It's Lord at the end of the day. Lord is uh, generic. So therefore, why is Abraham overextending himself sakanat nefashot to go save, uh, to go save Lord? I mean, it's the biggest question that we have. Anyway, he didn't ask me, he went. And the Torah comes along and says the amazing thing. Not only did he go to the war, he defeats the four kings, and we talk about an upset of the highest order, and he's able to retrieve Lot. He gets Lot out of captivity. Okay, continue for a second. Now go to chapter 15, just so you get the story good. I'm sorry, stay right there. Right after the war is over, go to Pasuk 18, he goes to Jerusalem. It's right next to Yamamela. So he went up the road over there. He gets to Jerusalem. Who's the king of Jerusalem? A fellow called Malkitzedek, which we learned about him during Parashat Noah. Okay, good. He gets to Malkitzedek. He said, Listen, I just was in a little, 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 little uh, war. I got some ma'asir. I want to give you some tzedakah. Beautiful. Nobody ever refuses that. And then all of a sudden, look at what Malkitzedek says. Look at Pasuk 19. Vayomar, he says, Baruch Avram ne'el elyon kodesh shemayim ha'ash. Blessed be Avram. Ubaruch el elyon. And bless God. Asher migen sarecha beyadecha. He protected you from your enemies. God Almighty is great. You were protected from your enemies. And from here we get the beracha and the amidah. Baruch at Hashem magen Abraham. From this, it's coined from over here. Because Malkitzedek said, Shem is so good. You protected this man from his enemies. And I'm asking a simple question. Who's his enemies over here? I mean, there was a war of four kings and five kings. That's, that's nothing to do with Abraham. Now, Lot got embroiled over there. Okay, Lot got involved. Abraham just coming as a good Samaritan to save his nephew. He came in, got Lot, and leaves. If I was Abraham, I would ask Malkitzedek, which enemies you talk about? I have no enemies. I just, I just came in as a... Uh, uncle to save Lot. This was not about me. 
But Malkit Tzedek, he understood that something was going on over there, that Hashem saved you from your enemies, and I'm asking, can you please identify, where's the enemy here? That's my questions. I've exhausted this uh, perasha with as many questions I could ask our members. Now we're going to go back and apply analysis. And you're going to see a new story emerge, and all the questions are going to be answered. Let's go back. It was in the time of Amrafel Melech Shin'an. I asked you, who's Amrafel? We heard of Ahasuerus. We heard of King Charles. But we never heard of Amrafel. So that she tells us, uh, you know him. Who Nimrod? Amrafel had another name. Nimrod. Same guy. He needed another name for the for the COVID uh, for the COVID card. <laughs> what, 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 what does he have? What, what, what is he changing his name to Amrafel? So that she says, because if you remember the episode we learned last week, Nimrod had a philosophical argument with Abraham. Abraham was preaching monotheism, and Nimrod was preaching self-deity, that he is a god, and that there's no such thing as the god of the heavens and the earth, and Abraham and Nimrod debated it. At one point in the debate, and there's thousands of people watching it, Nimrod says, if you don't uh, acquiesce, and you don't uh, uh, bow, and, and give up your opinions, I am going to throw you into the fiery furnace, and I'm going to burn you. Amrafel is Rashetevot. Amar fall. He said, I will fall you into the furnace. In, in English, how do you say to fall? Fall. In Hebrew, how do you say it? Lipol. There's certain words that they borrowed in English from Hebrew. Fall is one of those words. Lipol to fall. It's the same word. So therefore they call Amrafel, Amrafel, because he told Abraham, Amar, fall. He told them, I will fall you into the furnace if you don't acquiesce and give up your beliefs. Oh, so now we know Amrafel is. Now, can I just ask you a question? Side point, how did she know this? I mean, if I'm writing a commentary on the Torah, how would you know that? I mean, she so you tell me, Ruach HaKodesh, okay, without Ruach HaKodesh, how would you know this methodically? So I can prove it to you very simply. If you have your Chumashim open, open up chapter 10, Pasuk 10. In chapter 10, Pasuk 10, the Pasuk says, Name uh, English is 46. So the Torah over here introduces Nimrod. In Pasuk 10 it says, Nimrod's kingdom began in Babel. Oh, so here we see that Nimrod was the king of Shinar. And here it says that Amrafel was the king of Shinar. So that she says, ah, the same guy. As far as we know, they didn't have elections. So therefore, he's, he's the same guy. And therefore, as she says, it must be. Uh, Nimrod, and they call him over here, Amrafel. He's the guy that Abraham Abinu was uh, dealing with uh, many, many moons before. Very nice. Now it happens. So they go into war. Now listen to this. 
There's a great rabbi called the Levush. The Levush wrote a sefer on Homash called Sefer Ha'ora, where he has a lot of very, very beautiful ideas. And in his Sefer Oran, this Perashah, he writes that when Nimrod was fighting Avraham early on, Avraham did not have too much clout. Avraham was just starting his career, and therefore he had no influence, he didn't have too much money. So therefore Nimrod was strong-arming Avraham, he threw him into a fire, and you know, he was able to bully him around. Over the course of time, Avram's influence started to grow. His empire started to grow. This is a man that became very wealthy. He has an army of his own. How many rich people have their own army? I mean, one thing to have a driver, you have a butler, you have a maid, but you have an army? It wasn't a country. And now all of a sudden, Avram's rubbing elbows with all the big shots. He goes to Egypt, he meets Paro, he goes to Pilishtim, he meets Avimelech. Wherever he goes, he's talking to kings. That means he became a very, very uh, influential, influential man. So now he says Nimrod was fearful that now Avraham is in the position to take what we call sweet revenge. Then he wasn't. When Avraham came out of the fire, because when Nimrod threw him in, miracle happened. He threw him into the fire. Avraham told Nimrod, listen, my beliefs are not for sale. These beliefs are worth living for, and these beliefs are worth dying for. So therefore, you could throw me into the fire, I will not give in one iota of my truths. So when he threw him in, Avram didn't expect to live, but actually he survived it. Later on, Avram would say, Anuchi afar which means I should have been ashes and dust, but Hashem made a miracle for me. Now you could only imagine when Avram emerged from that fire, how embarrassed Nimrod was. I mean, he showed him up. And now over the course of time, when Abraham becomes very, very strong, Nimrod is worried this man's going to take revenge. So he says he made a truce with Abraham. Similar to the truce that we're going to read in this week's Perasha that Abraham made with Abimelech. There was a little scuffle, and Abimelech tells Abraham, I will not touch you, your children, your grandchildren. Abraham says, same here, and they shake hands. He says the same thing happened in the Mirot. So there was a peace. Very good. Now what happens? You think the Mirot's going to keep the peace? No. Of course not. Now I want to ask you a question. The four kings, which was led by Amrafel, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a little confused, to be honest with you. And I don't even know if I'm going to be able to reconcile this part. Maybe somebody has an answer. Me, I'll, I'll accept it. In, in Pasuk Aleph, it says, which sounds like the main guy of the four is Amraphel. I mean, you're putting him in order. I was going to say it's in, in alphabetical order, but it's not even in that. Amraphel, and then Aryoch, and then Kedor Laomer, and then Tidah. Well, maybe it's in alphabetical order, to be honest with you. If you say that, then you're okay. It is alphabetical order, by the way. It's not a phone book. So the question is, <laughs> it sounds like Amna feels the main guy. Okay, no problem. But then go, go to the next uh, Pesukim over here. Look at Pesukhe. Uba'arba esre shana ba kedor la'omer vehamelachim. Kedor la'omer and the kings came. Hold it. Now it sounds like the main guy is Kedor Laomer, who's king number three, and then the other kings are just like, uh, by the way. And by the way, if you look at Rashi, 
Rashi says, Bakidon Laomer. Rashi, Lefishu Ayabala Maaseh. He was the main guy. So I'm a little confused on that part. I don't have that so clear. I mean, you start with Rav Rafael, and then you go to Kedolim, and everybody else becomes uh, accessories, but they're not the main guy. It's Kedolim Laomer. All right. Listen, not everything has an answer immediately. Some things we bring to your uh, attention as a question. I'm being intellectually honest. I could have hid that from you, but just a full disclosure, that part should be uh, fixed one day. Fine. But let's talk about Amrafir. Amrafir was tricky. You think he wasn't going to take revenge against Abraham? He was going to let Abraham show him up? For all those people, Abraham came out of the fire, which proves that God is God and Nimrod's a faker. Nimrod had a plan. This whole war is to fight against the five kings. Once they beat the five kings, who did they go after? Lot. Why? Because Nimrod knows, how do I get Abraham into the war? Because I got to get Abraham into the war so we could kill him. So the only way I can draw Abraham into the war, I got to set a trap. So the trap is, I get his nephew. Knowing Abraham, such a Sadiq, he's not going to sit back when his nephew's in trouble. And therefore, they couldn't care less about Lot. They were really going, Lot is a pawn. They're really going after the big prize, which is Abraham. And to be honest with you, the, the, the plan worked like a charm. I mean, Nimrod actually, uh, Fishan, he baited him in, and he's wheeling Abraham into the war exactly where he wants him. And that's what, if you read the Pasuk, the Pasuk says when they captured Lot, and I'm reading now again, the Pasuk says in Pasuk, um, Pasuk 12, Vayikru et Lot, and they took Lot ve'etrichusho and his value. And you know what the value of Lot was? Ben Ahi Abram. That's the value. And this is how we're learning. What's Lot worth? Lot's not worth anything more than anybody else that they conquered. No. Lot's asset is his relationship to Abraham. And that's why it says, Ve'et kol And what might that be, kol He is Ben Ahi Abram. And therefore, this was a targeted attempt, not against Lot, but against his uncle. But the only way I can get to the uncle is by taking the nephew, and then we're going to wait for the uncle to show up and set a trap for him. Once and for all, we'll be able to put Abraham to rest. Now watch this. So now how's Abraham going to find out about it? No question, probably Nimrod told the Palit, go tell Abraham. And we know the Palit wasn't such a Lashem Shamayim guy, by the way, because the Hachamim tell us that although he told Abraham, but he also had ulterior motives. He wanted Abraham to go to the war and die so he could take Sarah. He had his eyes on Sarah, the Palit. So nobody hears Lashem Shamayim. You have to learn that, by the way. By, the, by, the, by, the, by, the, by these crooks, even though it sounds like the Palit is a big Sadiq, why well, he went to tell Abraham? He's not telling, he's working for Nimrod. He went to tell 
Abraham about it to get him into the war, and then he'll, he'll take Sarah. But that's for another time. Just look at the ulterior motives that are working here. So what happens? He comes along. I need to tell you, Rabotai, there's two types of anti-Semitism in the world. That's, the, uh, that's trending now. Anti-Semitism is trending. So let's talk about that for a minute. There's two types of anti-Semitism. One is a form where the goy wants to get rid of the Jew. No matter how religious he is or how irreligious he is. That's Hitler, the final solution and the extermination of Jews just because they're Jewish. I mean, you couldn't negotiate with Hitler and tell him, but listen, I'm not sure about Shabbat. Doesn't matter, your grandmother's Jewish. But I don't keep kosher, doesn't matter. And I wear salib, it doesn't matter. Your grandmother's Jewish, you're Jewish, therefore, you're out. That's the same anti-Semitism of Haman, where Hitler probably inherited it from. But they just want to get rid of Jews. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't care about your religion, I don't care if you're, if you're devout or you're not devout. Extermination, final solution. Now there's another form of anti-Semitism where they don't have too much problem about the Jew, but they're more concerned about taking his beliefs from him. Let's talk about a little more modern. The Inquisition would be a perfect example. Now the Inquisition in Spain, if you would relinquish your Judaism and exchange it for Christianity, you survived. Now they didn't tell you and you got to change your last name from Goldberg to uh, Gonzalez. No, you, you could keep Goldberg. There's nothing against the Jews, just your beliefs we don't want. Now, if you weren't willing to give up your beliefs, then they'd kill you. That's another form of anti-Semitism. In this war over here, Nimrod against Abraham, it wasn't that they had anything against Abraham. It was a philosophical war, it was an ideological war. So who were they against? They weren't against Abraham. You know who they were against? Because he stood on the other side. If Abraham would just cross the other side of the ideological argument, they have no problem. If he concedes and says, I agree with you, no problem. Some of my best friends are Jewish. But the fact that Abraham stands on the other side, meaning he has a different way of thinking, and that's what... Og, when he comes to speak to Abraham about this war, here the Torah says, it's Abraham Ivri, because they were coming after his Ivri. Understand why it's written over here specifically. Here is the war against them, against the thoughts of Abraham, the, the thinking of Abraham, the ideology, the philosophy. Therefore, it's a war against, not Abraham, but Abraham Ivri. Now the question is, when Og tells him this news, the Pasuk says Abraham's reaction is, Vayishma Abraham. Vayishma doesn't mean he heard. Vayishma means he understood. When we say Shema Yisrael every morning, it means understand Israel. Sometimes when I'm talking to somebody and I say, you hear me? What do I mean when I say you hear me? You understand me. Abraham understood exactly what was going on. He figured it out right away. The trap, they're trying to trap me. Nimrod took Lot, 
It's the Ivri. He got the whole thing right away. He knows exactly what's going on. Vaishma. In, in Yiddish, they say he chapt. Ivantem? Kapish? Vaishma. He understood. Now, at this point, I would say he understood it's a trap. He knows what they're doing. They're trying to lure him in. His opinion should say, <laughs> I'm not going to fool with him. One yesterday. I know this guy Nimrod from 100 years ago. He tried to throw me into a fire. Man's a criminal, and he sends Og the shill to give me the news. It's a set- Everybody's setting me up here. It's all a big setup over here. Everybody's playing, uh, playing the game over here. And well, they think Abraham is a naive guy. Oh, yeah, my nephew Lord, let's go save him. Uh, good Samaritan, the Boy Scouts, we're going to go save Lord. And they have 22 landmines to kill the guy. So, but what does Abraham do? He goes. He goes. <laughs> it makes sense. But the bazook says, and what motivates him to go? Kiddush Ba'achiv. So I once heard from Achav Abad Yaa, in 1987 when I was in Israel. I was live, I heard it there live when he, when he proposed this. It's a brilliant uh, proposal. Achav Abad said, what does it mean, his brother? So if you look at Rashi early on in the parasha, it says, Lot was a spinning image of Abraham. He looked like Abraham. To the extent... If you looked at Abraham and Lot together, you'd say they're twin brothers. They had features that were very, very, very similar. They were not biological brothers, clearly not, but you could mistake them. I mean, they did come from the same family, obviously. They shared the same grandfather. And sometimes you see, you know, there's family people. Oh, he looks exactly like his nephew, his uncle, and so on and so forth. In this case, it was not just there was a similarity. It was enough where people would say, they're brothers. So says Chavavadiyah, look how clever this guy Nimrod is. When he captures Lot, what is everybody going to say? They got Abraham. They got him. And that's what Nimrod's going to do. Look, I got him. So go on CNN, fake news, put Lot in front of the cameras, underneath they're going to say, Abraham caught, and they're going to interview Nimrod, I got him, here he is, he's there. This is the guy that said he's uh, monotheism, where's monotheism? I caught him, he's a faker, he's a nothing, and now let's hear from the captive. You know how they do when they captive the guy? And they have the gun to his head, and they make him read, I hate America, Putin very good. And, uh, you know how they do that to the guy? So they're not going to put him in front of the cameras, Lot, state your name. My name is Abraham. Uh, what do you got to say? Nimrod was right. I was wrong all those years. I made a mistake. He's the God. My whole philosophy is, uh, is, is washed up. Abraham says, I wouldn't go save Lot just like that. But the fact that he's my brother and looks exactly like me, there's going to be Hilul Hashem over here. It was going on. If it was for the nephew, let the nephew get taken into captivity. But he's the brother. There's a facial similarity here, and Nimrod is going to capitalize on that, that optic, that fake optic, and he's going to use it to his advantage, and the people are going to say, Abraham is caught, Nimrod was right. He couldn't throw him into the fire in round one. Round one goes to Abraham, round two goes to Nimrod, and that's it, they're going to call the match, and Nimrod's going to win. And Abraham says, and that will create 
the greatest desecration of Hashem. And for that, I'm willing to die. Because that's Chilul Hashem. Now already, you're desecrating that. For that, there's no, there's no calculations. For that, you've got to protect God's kabod. Uh, 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 he throws himself into the war. And now all of a sudden, you know, Og probably goes back to the world and said, it worked like a charm, he's coming. <laughs> and they all start to wait. There he comes, we're going to get this guy. He made a fatal mistake. And all of a sudden he comes to the war and the Neskadol, I mean, against all odds, Avraham somehow, and for another time, the Gabriel explains it, he comes along and he's able to overtake, I mean, he's able to overtake all the, uh, I mean, a, a stunning miracle, a miracle like you never saw. If you want to know the story quickly, without going too long, it says he just picked up dirt, the sand, and he threw it. And each crystal of sand turned into an arrow. And therefore the four kings are coming at him. And Abraham Abinu is throwing thousands and thousands and thousands of arrows just in, in sand and dirt. And they, they didn't know what type of artillery is this? What type, what type of weapon is this over here? This is, and he's just able to get them all. I mean, clearly something above nature, that's for sure. It doesn't happen every day. The small amount of uh, uh, sand all of a sudden was able now to, uh, 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 to push back the big armies. Now what? Lot is saved. Now I understand when he goes to Jerusalem, what Malki Tzedek was telling him. Malki Tzedek says, wow, Abraham, blessed be the God, Asher, that protected you, Asher migen Sarecha, that protected you from your enemies. And I asked you earlier, Asher migen sarecha. Liadecha. He delivered your enemies in your hand. Which enemies? Nimrod. <laughs> now we understand who the enemy was. This, we asked initially, it wasn't about Abraham. And the answer is, hey, it was everything about Abraham. The whole war was about Abraham. This was all the ruse to get Abraham dead. And therefore, Malkitzedek understood it said, I mean, this guy Nimrod was very tricky, very clever. He had, he could have went either way. So when you say the Beracha in the morning, Magen Avraham, it's this whole story. You understand? Now, your Amidah just took another three and a half minutes because you got to get reviewed. Oh, that's, that's what we ponder. Magen Avraham. What a story that they were going after this man's ideology. They went after the Ivri, and God protected the Ivri, and Nimrod falls, and Abraham is able to win, and uh, there's a again over here. That's the simple shot of this. <laughs> which, which, by the way, I, 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 and I must confess, we, we really didn't do too much yet, although we explained the. Uh, 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 a text that was very, very uh, hard to understand at first reading, and now in second reading, it's a different story. And to be honest with you, I have no compunction of closing the book now and saying, you know, Shabbat Tov, and none of our members can have any claim because you really learned something tonight. But you didn't learn a secret. Because I do believe what I did now can be done by others. I don't think I did something, you know, earth-shattering. I mean, I explained the text, 
maybe just in a, you know, a nice uh, charismatic way, but it's just explaining the text at the end. And therefore, nothing wondrous. And I was contemplating, because I had this already in my pocket last Tuesday. I was ready to present it to our members on Shabbat and this class. By Tuesday, this was done. And I said to myself, I can stop here. Well, our members like to come for the cherry. They like the cherry. And if you give them the cake without the cherry, they're not going to be happy. I spoiled them that they always have to have a cherry. So I said, I don't have a cherry for this. So I went more. I'm trying to analyze that. But I think I exhausted it to the level that I was able to. But then I thought to myself, that Amban in this parasha says, there's a rule. Ma'ase avot, siman labanim. You've heard that rule? I'll explain it to you because it's a key formula to understanding Sefer Bereshi. The stories that Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and the Imahot experienced, although they were personal, they were their stories, they were their lives. It's called Ma'ase avot. What happened to them would eventually become our story. Their personal lives becomes Jewish history. They lived it in the microcosm, and then it would become national history in the macrocosm. It's an amazing concept. That means their lives were the precursor to what was going to happen to us, just in a small version of it. It's almost as if to say, they are the genome of Jewish history. The chromosomes where Jewish history begins is in Ma'ase Avot. And therefore, learn a lesson. Anytime you study Ma'ase Avot, you have to see two screens in front of you. You have to see what happened to them, and then you have to say to yourself, well, when did this happen to us? Where in Jewish history did this episode manifest? Ma'ase Avot, screen one. Siman Lebanim, Screen two, and we're always doing that. And anything that they experienced will always come out in the in Klai Israel. So I said to myself, "Well, wait. This, this, is, a, this is a tremendous story. This is a, I mean, the Torah devotes a chapter on this episode." So I'm asking to myself, "I got my sevot, but when did this war, this ideological war?" And I said, "When did history?" Did the Goyim come against, not us, but against our beliefs? When did they, when were they not so much concerned about Abraham, but they were more concerned about the Ivri? And I think it's unanimous. So my theory was, could this be the Ma'aseh Avot Siman Banim of Hanukkah? I mean, we say it in the Sidur, when we talk about Malchut Yavan al it says, what was their intent? Nowhere does it say they wanted to kill Jews. They wanted to forget the Torah and to remove us from our beliefs. And by the way, if, if you gave up your beliefs, they had no problem. The Mityavnim, the Mityavnim were the Hellenists. They were Jewish. And, 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 and the, the Greeks did not even make them change their last names. They could keep their name Goldberg. They don't have to change it to, you know, Stephanopoulos or something. They could keep, they could keep the Jewish name. Oh, so once I said, this must be the DNA of Hanukkah. 
Then I said to myself, what's well, perfect? In Hanukkah, who beat the Greek Empire? The Hashmonaim. A small group, maybe one of the greatest upsets in history. And we say it in the Sidur, the Rabin Biyat Me'atim. Here's a story where the few were able to overtake the many. Is this not the story over here of Abraham's 318 soldiers or the Gematria Eliezer, two men, they come along and they're able to take over and win the tremendous upset. It's the same DNA. The war is the same pretense, ideological, and it's the same against all odds. Two long shots end up coming in. Abraham is the long shot in the first race, and the Hashem are the long shot in the second race. They have the daily double. In both, both, both races, the underdog wins. Is that, is that not Hanukkah? Now, I have to confess, at this point, you get excited. Because when you start to see two similarities in the genes, you say, that's it. I, 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 it's got to be there. So, and you can't be greedy in this, in this business. You have to be, go methodically and slow. But this is what happened. I said, wait. Where were, the, where were the Greek, where was the Greek Empire, if you know the history? Well, the Greek Empire was in two places. There was the Greek Empire in, in, in Egypt, which is Talmai, and then there's the Greek Empire in Syria. Actually, there's a city in northern Syria called Antochia, which could be today in Turkey. It's north of Damascus. And that's why they called them Antiochus, because it came from Antochia. And those are the Greeks of, 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 of Hanukkah. So I said to myself, wow, uh, you know, if, you could, if, if somewhere in this story it would tell me, you know, north of Damascus, that's the low man, you can't, I said, you know, don't, be, don't be so overreaching because you're not going to get that. That's the that's location on the map. That's a, why would you ever mention such a location? Especially the war was not there. The war was by the Dead Sea. Anyway, open the text. Open the text. So Abraham gets into the war, read Pasuk 15. The Pasuk says Abraham starts to chase the kings. He chases them to Hova. Now I don't know where Hova is. So the Pasuk says, you know where Hova is? Asher Misimon de Damasek, north of Damascus. I mean, talk about the location of Hanukkah. That's where it happened, north of Damascus. That's where Antiochus and the Greeks came and hit us. So slowly, slowly, we're building a case. Now we have the pretense of the war was ideological in both cases. Two long shots came in. And now you tell me the location north northern Damascus was exactly where Antochia is. Now watch this. There's a word in this Perasha, in this chapter, that Rashi tells us it's the first time the Torah uses such a word. Now that's not such a shock because we're only two, three parashiyot in. So that, a lot of new words are going to appear. But this word is the first time it appears. And whenever you have a new word, 
Rashi will always go out of his way to try to explain you the word, what's its etymology, and then he usually likes to give you some usages. You know, the Webster Dictionary, they give you the definition, they give you a couple of sentences. So Rashi, Lavdil, of course, in Kodesh, he does it also. He says, here's the new word, this is what it means, and you'll see it in other conjugations, like here and there, and then you get an understanding of the word. What's the word? Open up Pasuk 14. Vayishma Avram Kirishba Ahiv. He heard that his brother's in captivity. Vayarek et Hanichav. 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 So that she right away comes along and says, hey, what is that word Hanichav? So he says, continue. Vehulashon. Go go to the after the parentheses. Vehulashon hathala. It's an inauguration. When you inaugurate something, it's called a Hanukkah. These 318 soldiers, or Eliezer, whoever you're talking about, was inaugurated by Abraham. Abraham inaugurated him into his army, into his belief system. So therefore he's called a Hanukkah, like a student that you inaugurate into education. So that she says, anytime you inaugurate something, it's called a Hanukkah. And then he says, and his example, Kemo Hanukkah Tamizbeah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah Tamizbeah, which is exactly what happened. Do I have to sing the Ma'od Sur for you? Hanukkah Tamizbeah. That's the song. That means they came and defiled the temple, and we had to go and rededicate. Could you believe it? Rashi, and the word Hanichav, all of a sudden sticks in Kemo Hanukkah Obviously, the tzaddikim, when they saw this word Hanichav, they said, uh, you're looking at Ma'aseh Avot, but I'm going to bring you the Siman Labarim. This Hanichav would become Hanukkah Tamizbeah. Rashi, in a very, very subtle way, drew the line. That when you see Hanichav of Abraham, Know that this is Hanukkah Tabayat. And that's the next example he says. The Hanukkah Tabayat. And we all know that the Mizmor that we read on Hanukkah is Mizmor Shir Hanukkah Tabayat de David. So you have both Hanukkah Tabayat and Hanukkah Tabayat. I mean, this is, a, this is to me is a find. Now watch this. The Zohar Kadosh says that whenever you see four kings, so right away you have to know that the four kings are always going to represent the four kings of the four exiles that the Jewish people endured. And we all know that there were four exiles. There's Galut Bavel, which, by the way, would represent the first king, because Amraphel was the king of Shinar, and Shinar, we said, was Bavel. So that's an illusion that the first exile that the Jewish people are going to endure is Bavel. The second king is Aryoch. He was the king of Elasar. I took out a map. I looked where Elasar is. It's Media. That's Media. Paras Umadai, which is the second exile. The third king is Kedola Omer, and he was the king of Elam, which was the capital city of Yavan. Wow. 
So Kedol HaOmer represents Yavan. Tid'al was the fourth king, who was the Romans. He's the king of Goyim, because the fourth exile is everywhere. The fourth exile was not limited to Babylonia, or Parasu Madai, or to, or to Elam. This exile was Spain, Europe, North America, wherever Goyim are, that's where Jews are going to be. The fourth exile is not limited to a location. Tid'al, which is number four, is Melech Goyim, which we're experiencing now. But which one of these kings represents Yavan? The third king who is called Kedon Laomer. That's maybe why in the next pasuk it says, came Kedon Laomer and the other kings. What, what happened there? Because the Torah is coming to say, this is all about Kedon Laomer, king number three, because that represents Malchut Yavan. We answered the question that I told you I wouldn't answer. You hear what I'm just telling you now? Remember I asked you, I said, I don't know why it starts with Amun Afeel, but then it says, it drops everybody else. It says, Kedon Laomer and the other guys. And then she says, he was the main guy. Why is he the main guy? Because since it's the Ma'aseh Avot of Yavan, the third exile, so Kedon Laomer is the king of the third exile. He's the king of Elam, which is Yavan. And therefore, <coughs> he must be highlighted. And the Gemara says in, in the end of Kedushin, the Gemara says, if somebody comes to you and says, I am from the Hashmonai family. My great-great-grandfather was Matitya. The Gemara says, don't believe him. He's lying. Because that family of the Hashmonaim were totally wiped out. There are no living survivors of that righteous family. The question is why? And there were righteous people. Matityahu and his family saved the day. The Ramban explains. Before Yaakov Abinu passed away, he called all his sons in for blessings. When his son Yehuda came in front of him, he told him the following. Lo yasur shevet mi Yehuda. I guarantee the king's will never leave your tribe. You are the tribe of kingdom. Now we always understood it as it was a blessing. But the Ramban learns that it wasn't only a blessing, but it was a warning to the other tribes. Listen, none of the other tribes are able to nominate kings. Once the first king comes from Yehuda, then it must continue from Yehuda. The first king will come from a different tribe. But once we start with Yehuda, that's it. No other tribes are able to. So it was a warning. Yaakov said to the other tribes, you hear what I'm saying? Lo yasur. Lo yasur, lo yasur. It stays by Yehuda. What tribe did Matityahu come from? Levi. He's a Kohen. Came from Levi. They worked as Kohanim. What happened after the war? Matityahu said, listen, we know we're Kohanim. But the Jewish people need leadership. And they assume the mantle of kingdom. Says the Ramban, they went against Yaakov Abinu's curse. They were okay to assume kehuna, but a Kohen cannot be a king. And as a result of that, they got punished. 
And that's the aftermath of the story of Hanukkah we read when the Kohen became king. And that's where their downfall was. Now go read the story. What does Abraham do after the war is over? He goes to Jerusalem and read the Pasuk over here where it says, 18, and Malkisedek was the king. He brought to Abraham bread and wine. Okay, I would have said jelly donuts and potato pancakes, but fine. Vehu Kohen. Here you have a case where you have a king and the king was the Kohen. And that's exactly what happened after the story of Hanukkah. You had a king who was a Kohen. And right after that, when the Torah comes, Malkitzedek was the Melech. But it says, Behu Kohen. That's exactly what happened with the Hasmonaim. You had a Melech, Behu Kohen. And in that, so look at the DNA. The DNA is coming out in every single pasuk. I mean, it's stunning. That's why I like to read the Torah and not the newspaper. Because the newspaper, the newspaper is yesterday's news. Now, so I, I don't need to buy today's paper so they tell me what happened yesterday. Uh, yesterday happened already. That's why they sell the paper for a quarter, because it's yesterday's news. <laughs> but the Torah tells me what's going to happen tomorrow. That's a book I want to read. I want to know on Tuesday what's going to happen on Wednesday. So I want to read the book before it happens. This is a valuable book. I mean, if you study it correctly, everything's here. Tomorrow, the next time, everything's here. It's a futuristic book. Especially these episodes are telling us our story through the lives of the Avot. And we're only scratching the surface because we probably spend more time, you'll probably see every detail of Hanukkah's story in this episode over here. What's the lesson to us? What's the takeaway? I'll tell you what I take away from this. There was once a professor, a Jewish professor, secular guy. There was a university in Odessa. Where is that? Poland, Russia, Ukraine. Ukraine. And they're known for the anti-Semitism over there, Cossacks and all those Sadiqim. And they wanted to give the Jewish professor a, an upgrade to make him head of school. So they came to the board and they said, listen, you know, you have all the credentials to be head of school, but we have a policy in the university, you can't be Jewish. So you have to give up your Jewishness. And the guy wasn't religious anyway, but you have to give up your Jewishness, relinquish it, and then we can make you head of school. So the guy says, well, I don't know what Jewishness even means, so how can I give you something where I don't even know what I'm giving? So you have to give me a chance to study what Jewishness is and then I can make a decision if I should give it to you. How, how do I know? How do I know what's in the envelope? I don't know what's in the envelope. He asked me to give you the envelope. Or maybe the, so I got to see what's in the envelope. And then he looks at them and he says, but I'm very suspicious. 
because from the fact that that's the only thing that you're asking from me must be it's very valuable. Why would you be asking me for that? If it was such a cheap thing and such a valuable item, why is that the only thing you're asking from me? I don't know anything about this item, but I'm starting to believe that maybe it has a tremendous worth and that's why you want it. And he went and he started to study it. And then he came back and said, now that I see what it is, you're not getting it, and I quit. And he moved to Jerusalem and he studies in the Kolel in uh, Yerushalayim today. He says, from the fact that the Guim have been burning our Sefarim and going after the religion for so, that should tell us. They must know something. Why do they want it? Why does it threaten them so much? Why do they want to burn it? It must be... Now let me tell you, our great-grandfather Abraham was willing to die for these values. That means somebody tried to take it away from him and he said, I will die, I will not give you my values. This should be a wake-up call to American Jews. Because in American Jewry, nobody's putting a gun to our head. But the Jews are going to the Goy willingly, here, take it. And the Goy is saying, but I didn't ask for it. And the Jew comes willingly without a gun behind his back and take the Shabbat. But the guy says, I didn't ask for your Shabbat, your freedom of religion, you can keep it, I don't want to take it. Take Kashrut, take Tarat Mishpacha, take everything. And the guy scratching, he said, but we didn't even ask the guy for it, why, why is he giving it to us? In Spain, we asked it for him. Okay, then you, 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 can, you can judge favorably the Jews that couldn't withstand the test of dying or giving up their religion. Not everybody's like Avraham Abinu. But you can't understand the American Jew that willingly just gives up his Judaism, but nobody's asking for it. So what's your excuse? And don't you have any value to what your grandfather Abraham was willing to do? If he was willing to die for it, you're not willing to live for it. The religion is so cheap to you. The religion is so, so valueless. We have a religion that's 3,500 years old that the greatest Sadiqim were willing to sacrifice everything for. And here the Jew in America that has every ability to be free and to serve without any stress or pressure. And willingly we come along and we, we discard it. It's a lesson that we must learn from this story over here. Avraham Abinu risked his life twice against Nimrod. Nimrod tried to throw him into a fire. Now I, I do believe that there's a significance you know, on, on, on Hanukkah, and I know we're early, but we're in the parashah. Greeks came into the temple. It says they defiled all the oil. Now that's a, that's a pointed attack against the oil. Since when is the oil the enemy of the state? You want to burn the building down, burn the building No, they went in with a, with a plan. Every general has a plan. So if you look at the plan of the, of the generals of the Greeks, go in and defile the oil. What kind of plan is that? Go in and, and, and torch the place. I said, no, what do you have against the oil? What is the oil, the enemy of the state? Because then you can't light the menorah. And so what? So don't light the menorah. Because the menorah represents the light of Torah. Kiner mitzvah Torah or. So they were saying, that's what we're going after. We don't want that light of Torah to shine. And if they don't have kosher oil, 
So then they won't have a... Or what they really wanted to do was, they wanted the menorah to be lit with tamer oil, which means to introduce foreign, foreign ideas into the Judaism, to, to dilute the truth of the Torah with all sorts of modern values and Hellenistic values and ethics and ethos, all that stuff. And therefore, light the menorah with this type of oil. The menorah represents wisdom of Torah, and light always represents wisdom. As I told you many times in the old cartoons, when a person had a good idea, you see a light bulb go on in his brain. Somebody that's smart, they say he's bright. What I'm trying to say, if you understand me, I don't only say, do you hear me? I say, do you see me? You see? You see? Because to see is, to see is bright, it's light, it's illuminating. All these words represent light, and that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to break them, and they couldn't. And the menorah remained. The menorah represents the ivri. The menorah represents the values of Klai Israel. The Jew and his values. And if you want to know, in this story, look at the imagery. The only thing we're missing in the Maaseh Avot is the menorah, is the light, is the fire. And that fire is the fire that they threw Abraham into. That's the fire. They tried to take Abraham's values and burn them, and Abraham comes out of the fire to represent that you cannot burn Jewish values. Just like the Jew is impenetrable, his values are impenetrable, and they're eternal, and you can never destroy them. So when Abraham comes out of the fire, that already is the Maasev, what's Siman Nabarim. You're going to try to defile all the oils, but at the end they found a little Pach Shemin, and guess what? The values of Judaism through the menorah will continue to light. So even the fire of Ur Kazdim turns into Haga Urim, the holiday of lights. Stop over here. <laughs>